Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. It is Friday, March 4th, 2016. It's been quite a week. Uh, Open up the show with uh, Bad by Johan Kim. That was a beautiful piano cover. I always enjoy hearing people reworking other songs and uh, putting their own touch onto it. So this week's been a pretty heavy week for sure. I say that every week I come in to do the show. It is a news show, so granted that's what's going to happen. There has yet to be a week in the history of the world that has not been heavy, uh, at least in the last few centuries, I would imagine. This this week particularly was was pretty rough. Uh, On a personal note, I had a bit of a difficult weekend, uh, so I lost, I've been losing friends, uh, uh, and that's been very difficult, and then I went to two memorials, one on Saturday and one on Sunday, and by Monday, I was ready to kind of just to, to check out in terms of wanting to head out into nature and uh, not think about things for a little bit, and I was very glad that I did, and pressed a little bit of a reset button. And I uh, was definitely, definitely needed. So a friend and I went to the Presidio, and as you walk into the Presidio, there are these really ugly signs on the outside that say, uh, founded in 1776. And it's pretty gross, because like, once you get in there, it's a lot of nature, just feels very, very natural. And to be around uh, signage like that, that kind of says, this is where it's from, and this is when it was discovered uh, or founded, it's, I feel it's very disrespectful for absolutely everyone who was there beforehand. So had a, we had a really great time there. I wrote a bit about it and it felt great just to, again, be in nature and to be away from concrete and to be away from the indoors, uh, even though it's not that far away. It felt really, really good just to convene with nature. And uh, we decided to walk for a while on our way out. We walked from the Presidio all the way to the Castro. And when we got to the Castro on Market and Buchanan, there's a there's a luxury condo. There's a lo- there's a lot of luxury condos in San Francisco, unfortunately. And there's one where there's like there's like a plaza space uh, in between where the the condo walls are, and then and the sidewalk. There's a pretty sizable space, and no one there's like nothing there really. It's just concrete. So there are three people who were just sitting there. And as we were walking up, uh, I noticed there's a cop talking to them. And uh, I feel like I'm pretty good at reading energy, and I could just tell that this was not a good situation. So I wanted to stick around and just to observe and witness and uh, make sure everything was okay. And uh, the cop did not like me being there. He did not. He started threatening me almost immediately. He started calling me a paparazzi, although my phone was not only not out, but it wasn't even on. Um, and just started, he, the way he, he viewed me was something that I was not, and that felt very discouraging. So it was not my intent to fuck with him by any means. I'm not a violent person. I don't want to cause trouble at all. I do feel like if I am able to, uh, be there for people who are being harassed, I will definitely do what I can to do that. So I ended up sitting down with these people and the cop did not like that very much at all. And he, he got angry at me and said I was interfering with his investigation and I was like what investigation these people are sitting here on the sidewalk they're they're not not even on the sidewalk in this plaza area they're not causing harm to anyone they're not being loud they're not being uh like I wouldn't have even noticed that they were there if the cop hadn't been there and meanwhile his, his cop car was parked in the bike lane which is a big I mean that should just that was also a problem uh he was he was riding solo he didn't have any he didn't have a partner there he was like on his own and I was just really not having it, especially after, I mean, for, 
experiences that my friends have gone through. I've gone through a couple of my own, very, I feel like very, very minor comparatively. Uh, I don't, I really, I, I don't trust, I really don't trust law enforcement. And uh, I, I wasn't going in there looking for a fight by any means. It was really going in there to make sure that the folks who were being harassed were, were okay. Because I didn't feel that they, I just really felt like if I walked away, that would be part of the problem in a way. I'd be ignoring what was happening. So the officer, whose badge number was 2269, he asked him for it twice. Um, I didn't get his name. And I was thinking about even whether or not to even report it or whatever. But he, it was just like, it was just so, ugh, just gross. Anyway, so then he was like, you should just leave. And I was like, I'm on, you know, like I live in the city. I work in this city. I have every right to be here. And especially if this person is a paid servant, the cops are paid servants. Uh, they should, uh, everyone should, they should, why why even be upset about me looking at what they were doing? If he wasn't doing anything wrong, then why was I even a threat? And for folks who know me, if you don't know me, I'm not a big guy. I'm not, and if I was, like, it shouldn't matter what one's body looks like. Uh, but to, to view me as a threat, I felt was very, I was like, seriously? You're going to view me as a threat? Okay, that's ridiculous. Um, and again, I wasn't, wasn't taping, which is, and of course it's legal to tape, but I wasn't even doing that. I was more just there witnessing, making sure that no one got hurt. So I did get up to, to walk away, and then my conscience was like, no, I'm not going to leave this situation at all. And the officer said a few more words, and I don't know what happened exactly, but I ended up, we ended up kind of face-to-face, and he made a comment about how he had room in the back of his cop car for me. And I was like, really? I, I didn't say that. I was just like, just looking at him like, are you serious? I'm not doing, these people are not doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything wrong. Uh, and in so many of these situations, it are, they are the authority figures. I'm not going to make a blanket statement. I will say that quite often, the authority figures are the ones who are starting the problems. They're the ones starting the problems. And uh, then he went in to, to grab his, he has, he has like the handcuffs behind, you know, like the, the plastic or whatever behind him. And he went to grab him, then he went to grab my hand, and I just jerked away. And um, was just like, nope, this is not happening. This is definitely not happening. And it must have been, I've been told I can give off very intense energy. Uh, I must have looked at him in such a way that was like, I was doing everything in my power not to do anything else. Um, and again, I'm not a violent, I'm not, I don't act on violence. Um, I was extremely angry at this, this person, extremely, extremely angry for him for also just lying about what I was doing. And at one point, even before that, he'd even like called for a backup and the car, like my, my friend was like watching like, this car, like pulled up and then just left. Cause it's like, what is this? What do you, what do you need backup for? No one's causing any harm. And again, this person was the one who came into the situation and was, was causing the, the, the toxic energy and the mistrust. Ugh, it was gross. And then afterwards, he was he was saying that he needed to like you know check the people's IDs, which is like why? Oh, we live in we live in the police state. That's why I guess. Anyway, uh, but he needed to check their IDs in case they were murderers. And I just thought that was so ironic. And it's like here's a, a a police officer assuming that these people who happen to live on the street or or don't have a current housing, I don't know their situation, that they were somehow murderers or criminals um, when the when one looks at the, for instance, the footage of Mario Woods being murdered, he was murdered by police officers. So if we're going to talk about finding murderers, maybe this person, this officer should be investigating uh, his colleagues. That's just a thought. So I thought that was just, I was like, really, you're going to assume that these people on the street are, are murderers. That's, that's rich. That's great. Whew. 
Anyway, the, the positive thing is that it ended up with the officer just driving away. He didn't hurt anyone. I mean, he kind of hurt my, like, I'm going to say feelings. And you know, he grabbed me. He put his hands on me. And uh, that's something I was thinking about as well. I have had, there's definitely a lot of folks here on the street. I have been harassed more by police officers here. And by I say harassed, I mean people have put their hands on me. And this is like the second time a, a SFPD officer has done that. Uh, once by the NYPD many years ago, and this is the second time. And I realize this is very, very small compared to what many people go through on a daily basis. Um, and I have a lot of privilege that I was able to get up and, and walk away when I wanted to. And I came back, and the fact that I was able to kind of, you know, prevent him from taking, even though I hadn't done nothing wrong, and that's the truth, like a lot of people don't do anything wrong, and sometimes it doesn't make any difference at all. Um, but I have a lot of privilege in that, that I was able to stand up to him and walk away safely. And just thinking about for other folks who also have that privilege to, to I recommend questioning when you see an officer doing something that seems highly illegal um, and highly questionable to do what we can with our bodies to, to take the heat off other people who are being harassed and to also just to make them kind of question what they're doing. I feel like a lot of them have been told, I mean, there's 22 laws on the books here in San Francisco that make criminalizing the poor legal, but what's legal isn't always moral and what's moral isn't always legal as we very well know. So I recommend that everyone speak up when they're able. Um, of course, it, it feels scary, but if you are able, if you're in the privileged position where you can do that, definitely do that. Um, if more people did that, then we wouldn't be in the, the state we're in. Oh, that feels better. So that was, that was, oh, oh yeah. So then that, so I wrote, I wrote about it a lot and just the whole, the, just there's so much, just a lot of feelings and a lot of emotion and a lot of also just like right and wrong and how, uh, the, the two friends, uh, memorials I went to are both women and just feeling upset and angry that these are these are two very intelligent and funny and incredible women and the fact that they're no longer here yet there are these idiot men out there not to generalize but there are a lot i think i we can agree that there's a lot of idiot men out there not all men are idiots there are a lot of idiot men out men out there in positions of power and just this just recognizing this that my friends are not here yet these idiots are out here making me really angry and i think that kind of fueled my decision to want to stand up to this this person and so then I went to the Board of Supervisors meeting on Tuesday, and they have it open for public comment. And I've been a couple times, I've been a few times, just to watch people and support people who are speaking. Um, they had folks from Tajo's Coalition uh, months, maybe a year ago, speaking about uh, the transgender community here in, in San Francisco and violence that people face on a regular basis. And I went and I spoke uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, the, the sweeps and about, as I had some facts and statistics from people from the Coalition on Homelessness, and I read those statistics, and I felt it was well-received, and it felt good to be able to speak in an environment where ideally, I'm of course very cynical about when it comes to politics and politicians and elected officials or non-elected officials, um, <laughs> that I could at least speak my truth and have them listen, whether or not they're going to take any of that into account, it's gonna, or it's gonna change their, the way they view the world, who knows? Um, being able to at least express that, I feel, is a, again, it's a, it's a privilege, and being able to do that is a good use of time. So folks are given two minutes to speak. It reminds me a little bit of an open mic, in a way, more so this past time, because when I got up to speak, a lot of the supervisors were looking at their cell phones. It was like, is this an open mic? Sometimes you get open mics and there are comedians who are there just like not paying attention. They're in the back, they're talking or looking at their cell phones, uh, waiting for them to, them to go up. 
themselves to go up. And, uh, and this was the case. Um, John Avalos was looking at me. Emilia Cohen was looking at me. I can't speak for any of the other folks. I'm not saying that they all I think some other ones may have been, but many others were not looking at me, which I felt to be verily, uh, ooh. And perhaps some of the other ones were, but those were the two I definitely noticed who were looking at me. So I appreciate that very much. Um, but you know, all you, all you want to do is be heard and be listened to. That's, that's it. So I talked about my experience and how, um, especially since the officer was lying about what I was doing to my face, I wonder what it's like for the folks who are on the, oh, there's also an article I may get to. Uh, they did a report that the LAPD, and the LAPD actually like confirmed this, that uh, over 25% or about 25% of the people murdered by LAPD are people who are mentally ill. So when we think about police and law enforcement harassing people, um, these are folks who are perhaps like the most vulnerable. So I was in a situation where I was able to, I also had a, had a friend who was nearby, so that felt a little bit safer. Um, I was able to recognize that what this officer was telling me was bullshit. And if I was not in the, in the state of mind where I, I could re realize that this person was lying to me, I wonder what would have happened. And I think about this happening all the time where people in positions of authority lie to people and there are people who are not able to uh, recognize that this off that these people are are lying. So w what's what's that about? And uh, so I was thinking about folks, especially people who are on the street who don't have a place. I also had a place to go, so I was also privileged in that regard, where I had a place where I could go. Um, and afterwards, uh, and thinking about. So just, yeah, concerned about people on the street who are more vulnerable, um, perhaps, to, to law enforcement. They've been doing the sweeps, and people's possessions, their tents, everything have been taken, and I think that's pretty disgusting. Granted, it's a complicated issue, although we do have plenty with thousands of empty housing units here in San Francisco, so maybe it's not that complicated when you think about it. Um, well, one way of dealing with it is not to take a, not to like target people more. That's just fucking gross. That's really gross. That's really sounds like fucking. It's like fascism right there. Oh, you're on the street. We're gonna take your stuff. What? And where are people supposed to go? The shelters are totally like the over. There's overpopulation in the shelters. Like people can't even get beds in there. Even with the new, even with the new uh, places being built. <sighs> And on top of that, shelters aren't necessarily safe places for, for a lot of people. I've known, like, especially for trans folks, people don't feel safe in a lot of shelters. So where are people supposed to go? And also, even if you do get a, a bed in a shelter, uh, a lot of people have described it as being like a jail because you have to be in and out at a certain time. And that's kind of restricts one's uh, independence. Oh. So, San Francisco. That's where we're at, <laughs> at at this time. So I felt it was good to at least go to the Board of Supervisors and have it on public record. And you can watch the Board of Supervisors meetings. They record it all, which is uh, good. And perhaps for some folks who are actually there uh, listening, they will make a difference or recognize that even if they themselves have not had issues with the with police officers um, or law enforcement or any, any people in positions of authority who abuse their power to recognize that a lot of people go through it on a regular basis, and it needs to change. Oh, with that being said, how about some more music, and then we'll get into some stories. We've got some good stories today, articles. Uh, there's one about, the title is, Why Doesn't America Want to Talk About Trans Men or Deal with Trans Men? And I can think of a lot of reasons why, and I'll read that article. Also, a positive story. This person 
found a way for bees to make honey from marijuana and it's okay for the bees because like only like mam- mammals can like take on the the thc or whatever so but it's totally we all have you know it's like we definitely have an issue with the bees not having enough things to pollinate it, it's a good story that's a positive story another positive story the there's a party in spain that's radical left and they're they're kicking ass in a good way that's great uh also reproductive rights people speaking up about that which is also good it's a shame that people have to speak up about it but the fact that people are speaking up about it is wonderful so in uh in recognition of the story i just told uh here's a song this is by the strokes and it came out in 2001 oh my goodness that was a long time ago 15 years ago well 14 and a half and the album was released around like in the fall of 2001 ish or maybe a little bit before and due to an event that happened that year that that made everyone kind of, not everyone, but a lot of people decide to enhance security on everything and restrict a lot of expression, uh, this song was left off the album. And maybe we can uh, find out why.
welcome back. That was The Strokes with New York City Cops, a song that was not so mysteriously left off their debut album. Is this it? Ah, so moving along, we got a lot of stories. I'm going to get to as many as possible here. The first one comes from Huffington Post, and the title is, Why Doesn't America Want to Talk About Trans Men? I know the answers. There's a lot of answers. Uh, living uh, as uh, something I, I can't, every day I wake up, it's like, oh yeah, I, I, I would ideally like to not remember uh, that I'm trans or that I have a, a body that exists in a certain way that I have to identify, but the, the binary is alive and among us, unfortunately, still. And there's a sense of invisibility. So I've got my own experience, and I, a lot of my friends have their experiences as well, and I feel this article really goes into a lot of it and this feeling of being invisible a lot of the time. And I'm, I'm fairly out, and uh, it still feels like one needs to constantly come out to, to be seen. And how does one do that? It's complicated. So this article, will talk a little bit about that, and this is written by Sydney Chase. 2015 was a star-studded year for the trans community. We heard big names thrown around the media, like Laverne Cox, Janet Mock, and of course, the now infamous Caitlyn Jenner. Where is the common thread between all these women? Well, that's the common thread right there. We only hear about trans women. America has been specifically engaged in conversations about trans women, which has continued to erase everyday trans men from the conversation almost entirely, especially trans Latin men and trans men of color. To better understand the complexities of this conversation, I decided I wanted to dig deeper and understand what about this conversation is so difficult to acknowledge. I feel like in the media, trans men are Chaz Bono or an abstract concept, says Caleb, a black trans man looking for more reflections of men like himself in the media. And shout out to Chaz for the representation, but I'd appreciate some media attention for guys that look like me. When I log onto glad.com's website and search for black trans men, I only got one result, Teek Milan. His profile indicates he's the senior media strategist, strategist for Glad. I've seen him on BuzzFeed before. All his work in the media is only a small part of what makes him noteworthy. He's done more than enough to be the face for trans men across the board. I only have one issue with this search result. Why is there only one? How many trans people of color are on the board? Don't worry, I'll wait. It's most certainly not because other trans men don't want to step up to the, to the plate and represent. There are dozens of average, everyday trans men of color waiting in the wings to be heard. It's simply that the press doesn't seem to want to make space for their narrative too. It's a problem that many media outlets fail to address. Why isn't there more black and brown trans people in power and in the public eye? For many trans men like Caleb, it's not just about the overall representation that's lacking in the media. It's about the nuances of how these representations are crafted. I'd want to see guys in their area of expertise, so artists and musicians and writers and actors and businessmen. Really, more profiles and documentation of our experiences, he says. To him, it's about more than establishing a new stereotype to pander um, among the rest. Personally, I'm tired of being that transgender black guy who makes good drinks. Instead, I want people to understand that I'm an excellent barista who is also trans. That's what I want to see more of, says Caleb. He's ready for that change, because like many, he's, tried of, he's tired of being left out of the conversation. Even though transgender women are facing higher rates of violence, male privilege does not erase the other stigmas that follow the intersections of being black and trans. 
To some, the simple idea of being transgender seems like rocket science. Caleb says it's simpler than that. In our society, transitioning from female to male isn't as difficult for the ignorant grasp. He writes, this makes me chuckle. The element of male privilege that I have when people read me as male and the benefits that come from masculine presentation before I came out as trans. I think the FTM transition almost follows misogynist and transmisogynistic beliefs for some people, he says. He's referring to people who believe that trans men only transition to gain male privilege. For black trans men, perhaps they do gain a male privilege, but they do not lose their blackness. I walked down the same streets I did a year ago, and when I was read as small, masculine, black woman, the way people treated me was mostly unremarkable. But today, as a black man, I'm constantly a threat. By default, I guess, says Palmer. The mere thought of this jars him. The same white cis women I would have walked past a year ago now cross the street to avoid crossing paths or guard their belongings. I'm the same 5'1", and I'm still working on gaining muscle mass, so I have the same physical ability to be dangerous. It's purely social, he adds. The conversation of privilege when it comes to trans men is layered, like a spider web, especially for trans men of color who are constantly up against the many stigmas of socioeconomic discrimination. For trans men, like my friend Lee, the rabbit hole goes deeper and gets darker. Lee is a hardworking American like you and me. Like any other person, he saved his money for years and went into went in to buy a new car. He paid that day cash. What happened next was even worse. I had just spent 5000 and I had to wait to get the fuel pump fixed. Kept having more problems, spending more money, says Lee, who was publicly harassed recently by the automotive establishment. Hollingsworth Auto Sales, who sold him the car. Just check out the exchange above between Lee and the auto place on Google Reviews. And in the article, they have a screenshot of the, the conversation. This story is not the first of its kind by any means. Trans people of color face some of the highest rates of harassment, unemployment, and all the backlash that comes with redefining in communities of color as well. For the trans community, the outright transphobia we face can be some of the most brunt. I spent about $1,600 replacing the pump. I got a lemon. I was upset about the transphobia of the comment, and they, they didn't even say anything about the car, says Lee, who expressed disappointment not only for the establishment, but for his concerns of safety. It was concerning because I live in North Carolina. I live in a big community, but outside that community, people can be close-minded. I live by myself. I'm a student. You hear over the year about so many trans people who have died at the hands of murder, says Lee. He refers to the many incorrectly documented and undocumented crimes, which occur mostly in small counties where the state aren't worth, where the, the stats aren't worth counting to them. The fear has become yet another burden for Lee, who still worries for his future. I work two jobs and I'm coming home pretty late when it's dark out and it's like there's always someone looking over my shoulder. It's just a very scary place to be in, he says. Hopefully, someday in a world where trans men of color go unheard, that will change. Just like us, they want to be heard, too. <sighs> so, oh, yeah, uh, I'm going to just play a little bit of music, and then we'll be back with uh, some more, uh, oof some more stories.
welcome back. I stopped that song halfway. We'll be getting to the rest of it soon. That was a song played by this person on a machine he created using 2,000 marbles. Pretty awesome. So there's a lot of stories to get to, so I wanted to get into them. And we'll be finishing up that song in a little bit. So uh, reproductive rights shouldn't be an issue, but they are. Uh, again, this goes into people saying what other people can or cannot do with their bodies. So this article comes from Think Progress. Uh, the article title might make you mad. It makes me very mad. Ugh. The majority of all state abortion bills are based on lies, report finds. And this was written by Alex Zelinsky. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, I thought the first article that I read will probably be the most triggering Though we'll see. There's always a, hey, always do the show and then find out which article is going to make me that much more enraged or upset. And the first one was pretty tough, so I wanted to do that one uh, first and go from there. These will also, I'm sure, enrage me and enrage you, most likely. Here we go. 70% of all state abortion restrictions introduced in the 2015-2016 legislative session are based on false information according to the results of a study from the National Partnership for Women and Families released on the heels of Wednesday's support Supreme Court arguments on a Texas anti-abortion law. The 251 faulty bills in 37 states were found to be either uh, based on lies about abortion procedures and doctors or on false assumptions about why a woman would choose to get an abortion, or both. These proposed laws have likely contributed to the public's equally misinformed beliefs about abortion. There is no place for lies in healthcare, and that includes women's healthcare, says Deborah Ness, president of the National Partnership, in a press release. The group's report uh, parses out the variety of different regulations, including the political strategy spearheaded by anti-abortion lawmakers and found in the Texas law now in front of the Supreme Court. This strategy, called Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers, or TRAP, is based on the false assumption that abortion is a highly dangerous procedure conducted by inexperienced doctors. Oh. <sighs> to combat this assumption, TRAP laws place tight, unnecessary restrictions on abortion providers, many of which force them to shut their doors. In other legislation, lawmakers are trying to force abortion providers to supply women with false information about abortion. As an example, researchers turned to a New York bill that would require a provider to tell women seeking an abortion that abortion increases the risk of breast cancer, uh, a lie debunked by both the American Cancer Society and World Health Organization more than a decade ago. Another Alabama bill introduced would force a woman to get an ultrasound, even if it's unnecessary, and force the doctor to describe the fetus, even if the woman require, requests not to hear from it, uh, not to hear it. This, the study points out, is a lawmaker's way of doubting a woman's private medical decisions and, essentially, her own freedom of conscience, a uh, legally mandated right. Lies are being turned into laws in states across the country, and it must stop, the report reads. Ugh. So, this is one, uh, I'm not surprised by any of this, um, but, or I should say, and, the next story we have is some positive things, because obviously we're the folks who believe that everyone should have a right to do what they want to with their body, 
Um, and also, the truth, the truth should be told about that. Um, we're in the majority. And the next article is going to go into that. So there's some positive things, even though these idiots uh, in power are making, are just lying. That's a theme of the show. It's a theme of life, isn't it? Idiots in power lying to people and harming people by doing so. Doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter. It sucks. But the next article will be uplifting in that uh, we're in the majority, right? So this comes from Salon. And the article title, Stop the Sham! Pro and anti-choicers clash at rally while Supreme Court weighs fate of legal abortion in Texas. Pro, pro-choicers vastly outnumbered opposition at a SCOTUS rally, but there's still plenty of culture war fireworks. And this was written by Amanda Marcotte. Or Mar... Margotti. Marcotte? Marcotte. Marcotti. Okay. Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments for whole women's health versus Hellerstedt, a Texas case to determine whether states can use the pretense of women's health to shut down legal abortion in the state. Outside, under flags flying at half-mast, for the recently deceased Justice Antonin Scalia, <laughs> supporters and opponents of legal abortion try brave the cold to rally on the courthouse steps. Though really, it was mostly supporters of reproductive rights who turned out a crowd significantly bigger than the anti-choicers were able to turn out, and had a speaker system that was much louder than what the anti-choice activists brought to, brought to bear. This clearly frustrated anti. This tr- clearly frustrated anti-choice speakers, who got increasingly shrill in an attempt to be heard over the pro-choice crowd chanting and pro-choice. But no amount of shouting into the microphone helped anti-choicers overcome the noise of the pro-choice crowd. At one point, a small clutch of young men, uh, clad in Christian T-shirts, I don't know what a Christian T-shirt is, uh, and holding na- national right-to-life signs. <sighs> gave into the frustration. Annoyed by the pro-choice chants, some of which were in Spanish, they started chanting, build a wall, build a wall, before succumbing into a heap of self-congratulatory giggles. A woman behind them laughed and exclaimed, that's fantastic. At another point, one of the groups, one of the groups sneered, my body, my choice. Yeah, my choice to be stupid. Fucking idiots. Texas legislators, argue that the law in question, which requires abortion clinics to build full surgical suites that doctors have no use for, and to have hospital admitting privileges, even though abortion patients almost never need hospital care, are necessary to protect women's health. Oh, gosh. Stephanie Totti, Totti, uh, the lawyer from, from the Center for Reproductive Rights that argued the case in front of the Supreme Court, characterized the law as a sham designed to limit women's abortion access. The experts agree with Toady and not with the Texas legislatures who wrote this law. Both the American Medical Association and the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have denounced the Texas law as medically unnecessary and argue that it will result in worse health outcomes, especially since many women will attempt to self-induce if they can't get to a real doctor. As Samantha Bee recently demonstrated on her TV show, Texas State Representative Dan Flynn, who co-wrote the bill, doesn't seem to know how abortions are even performed, claiming that it involves cutting into a woman's body, not to gross out the bloody, not to, not to gross out the bloody fetus picture, people. But women come pre-equipped with a hole that allows a doctor to remove a pregnancy without surgery, and often even just by giving her a pill to swallow. 
This from a man whose bill rests on the assumption that he knows better than the American Medical Association what is safe for women. But even though the claim that abortion is dangerous is tissue paper thin, some of the anti-choice activists I spoke to at the rally tried valiantly to hold the line, arguing they wished to protect women from abortion. Like Flynn, two I spoke with insisted on talking about it in terms of knives and cutting and suggesting it's typical for women's bodies to be badly damaged by it. In reality, childbirth and even penicillin shots are far more dangerous. It would be fun to make a joke about sex ed, but since they held the since they held the line, even after I pointed out that you can that you can end a pregnancy with a pill, I have to conclude this talk of cutting is offered in bad faith and is an attempt to gross people out rather than out of sincere misunderstanding of what's involved. One woman carrying a sign reading, "I am a pro-life feminist," tried to convince me that opposing legal abortion is the feminist position. Abortion is a tool of the patriarchy, she told me, because it allows men to have sex without consequences. <sighs> when I asked if women might also enjoy sex, she conceded that it happens, but then pivoted, arguing, you don't get pregnant just getting on the bus. She returned to her ins insistence that sex should have consequences, implying that disagreement constituted irresponsibility. Despite the very real threat to reproductive rights going on inside the walls of the Supreme Court, most pro-choicers on hand were in a relatively sunny mood, buoyed by the much greater showing there's much but much buoyed by the much greater showing their side had at the rally. A group of pro-choicers held out a quilt so long that a row of people had to hold it up. Artist uh, Chai Nguyen stood at the center and told me that the quilt was meant to represent the 5.4 million women of reproductive age in Texas whose access to reproductive health care was threatened by the regulations. Activist Michelle Kinsey Bruns, who tweets under the name Clinic Escort, spoke early at the rally, telling the story of an abortion she got as a young woman. She's grateful that she was able to preserve her future with a safe, humane abortion, and because of it, she went on to be a volunteer at abortion clinics, helping patients get past the religious conservatives who show up to harangue them on their way to the clinic door. I came to tell my abortion story, she told me after she left the stage, because millions go untold, and because this isn't an abstract political thing. This is actually about people's lives and futures. Unsurprisingly, passions were high all around, but most of the clashes were limited to shouting and chanting. At one point, early in the rally, an anti-choicer started running back and forth into, in front of the pro-choice quilt yelling, repent, and accusing the people of holding... Oh, oh, gosh. And accuse the people of holding it of being murderers, all while blowing on, of all things, a didgeridoo. Nearly all the pro-choice activists pointedly ignored the provocation, but two people, a white man and a black woman, got up in his face about it. After it broke up, I asked the woman about it, and she said, I usually stay out of things like that, but this time I just had to say something. If he is for Jesus, why not feed homeless people? Why not do something about police violence? Yes. But, by and large, 
Most conversations between anti and pro-choice protesters were less frightening and more a microcosm, microcosm of the social anxieties underlying the debate over reproductive rights. Most anti-choice protesters kept to themselves, but one group of men carrying large signs festooned with fetuses and religious slogans took it upon themselves to wander about the pro-choice crowd, issuing condescending lectures to whatever women were unfortunate enough to meet their eyes. It was like watching the creepy guys at the bar hitting on women, except in this case, the creeps weren't failing to get laid, but failing to convince women they don't deserve basic human rights. One of them told a young woman he was debating that abortion is the equivalent of slavery. You're trying to tell me that controlling my own body is the same thing as slavery, she asked, incredulous, adding that slavery is about controlling someone else's body, really making the entire analogy quite ridiculous. Not that he had was deterred, but instead kept pushing his point until a female friend came and rescued her, which just reinforced that eerie creep-in-the-bar sensation. The relatively small number of anti-choicers out protesting was a big surprise. This is the biggest abortion case since Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and may even be the biggest since Roe v. Wade. Anti-choice activists tend to be con connected to a system of Christian churches and schools that will organize and transport huge numbers of people to these kind of events, trying to shore up that beloved but discredited myth that conservatives make up some kind of silent majority. But somehow, the numbers were paltry, meaning that the few I spoke to already seemed exhausted from, taking, from talking to reporters. The welcome result is that the rally at the Supreme Court ended up reflecting the larger social dynamics of the reproductive rights debate, and not just because the anti-choice side was mostly white Christians, while the pro-choice side was diverse, both racially and religiously. It was also because the pro-choicers dramatically outnumbered the anti-choicers. Since Roe v. Wade, Gallup polling shows that fewer than one in five Americans wants to ban abortion outright. A significant number, often of majority of Americans, will sit in judgment of women who get abortion. However, when you make them actually think about real women who need care instead of the careless slurs of anti-choice imagination, over 70% of Americans want abortion care to be safe and offered in a non-judgmental environment. Hopefully, the Supreme Court will agree with the majority of Americans and will overturn this Texas law that serves to make the abortion experience as miserable as possible when it's not erasing safe, legal access altogether. Whew. So there, there we have it. And that also reminds me of a, another bill that was trying to get passed in South Dakota. And they petitioned and the governor vetoed it, which was great. The, the bill was they were wanting to get transgender youth to not have access to bathrooms that they wanted to use. And the governor vetoed it, although I've heard that some of the lawmakers are now still trying to get it through. Uh, hopefully that will, that will not happen. But you know, small, small victories, right? It's not even that small. It's good that they are taking action to prevent idiots, <laughs> the idiots in power, or they think they're in power, from passing legislation that actually ends up hurting people instead of protecting people. I'm going to keep rolling along. Um, I feel rejuvenated by that story. So this is a conference that's coming up, and it's called the HIV is Not a Crime. And there's a website you can go to, and it is... Uh, HIVisNotACrime.com, and this is called HIV is Not a Crime 2 National Training Academy, and this is going to happen May 17th to May 20th, 2016, at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Uh, okay, 
HIV is not a crime too. We'll unite and train advocates living with HIV and allies from across the country on laws criminalizing PLHIV and on strategies and best practices for repeating for repealing for repealing such laws. Skills building, training with an emphasis on grassroots organizing, advocacy, coalition building, and campaign planning will leave participants with concrete tools and resources to work on state level strategies when they return home. Um, so yes, there's more information if you go to HIVisNotACrime.com uh, and they have a lot of co-organizers including the ACLU, GMHC, uh, AIDS United, AIDS Foundation of Chicago, HIV PGA, HIV Justice Network, even the even the even the HRC is there too, and Lambda Legal. There's a lot of folks here who are involved. So if you are available and interested, please do check out this conference. So now we're gonna finish playing the rest of that song I was playing before, played by a dude who created a machine uh, with marbles, and then we'll be back with some more stories. Welcome back. We have a story here from The Intercept. I recommend checking out The Intercept for some good independent news. This is written by Robert Mackey. Title is Spain's Radical Left Podemos Party Refuses to Sell Out. Ha ha. American progressives distressed about the prospect of being offered a choice this fall between a right-wing billionaire and a one-time corporate lawyer on the board of Walmart might look to Spain for a reminder that left-wing leaders with principles and charisma do still exist. In Madrid on Wednesday, Pablo Iglesias, the 37-year-old leader of Podemos, an anti-austerity party formed just two years ago, blocked the center-left Socialist Party's attempt to form a centrist coalition government and demonstrated a flair for political theater that galvanized his supporters on social networks. 
During an impassioned speech to Parliament, Iglesias said that his radical left party, which is now Spain's third largest, would not allow the miserable leader of the more mainstream socialist, Pedro Sanchez, to become prime minister because he had adopted the economic policies of the right. The debate in Parliament was closely watched on social networks, and the Podemos leader then made his opposition to the proposed government even more clear by leaping from his seat to congratulate a Catalan ally who also spoke against it with a bear hug and a kiss on the lips. Ah! I love it. They also include a video of it. Ah! Nice. That image of Iglesias kissing the Catalan representative, Xavier Domenech, was both celebrated and mocked in Twitter memes as his supporters rejoiced at the sight of the two men kissing directly in front of deputies from the Conservative People's Party, which recently tried and failed to ban gay marriage in Spain. And his attractors evoked comparisons to Soviet-era kisses between leaders of communist states. Los caras de los populeros. And they have a picture here. Um... And this is a, they just include a few of the tweets. Uh, Podemos, which means we can in Spanish, has also ruled out forming a coalition with the socialists and will now be hoping to become the leading party of the left at the next general election, likely to be held in June. Ah, so that's pretty awesome. Promise there would be good news. And, and there is. I'm going to go into the next good news story. And there's going to be some other stuff coming up on the show that will be... Ugh. Uh, uh, a little bit difficult to take, but it's always important just to remember that there are really good things happening uh, in the world and people doing a lot of good work. So, yeah, very important to to recognize that. Uh, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that there was a person who had found a way to, for, for bees to make honey from, from marijuana, and I'm going to read about that right now. Uh, okay, and this comes from Countercurrent News, and this is from March 2nd. Man trains bees to make honey from marijuana. Uh, many are calling him a genius. The man is an artisan, locksmith, and above all else, he explains, he is a beekeeper. He has over 4,300 Facebook followers and 700 on Instagram. After the 39-year-old Frenchman who describes himself as an advocate of medical cannabis and of complete marijuana legalization, trained bees to make honey from marijuana. He goes by the nickname of Nicholas Trainer Bees for obvious reasons. For 20 years, he has worked with bees in a way where he claims he is able to train them to make honey from virtually anything. I have trained bees to do several things, such as collect sugar from fruits instead of using flowers, he explains. Nicholas says he has been passionate about nature since childhood, which led him to this profession that mixes his love for plant life and with his love for animals, especially insects. Nicholas calls the marijuana honey produced by his bees canna honey from a training technique whereby the bees collect the resin and use it in the beehive. The final substance, he explains, is the sole work of the bees. For some time, I have known about the health benefits of bee products such as honey, uh, propolis, pollen, wax, and royal jelly, and also about the benefits of cannabis. And so he decided to make notice of the requests, he explains. Add to that the fact that everything that passes through the body of a bee is improved, he said, since their enzymes make the nectar turn into honey. So, if the bee took the resin from cannabis, it would also be very beneficial. The aim arose for me to get the bees to obtain this resin, he added. The can of honey was quite <coughs> was quite a floral aroma and a color, he explains. It is not smoked, it is ingested, and it is good for health, he adds. 
Nicholas says that the bees accept any strain. So do the bees do, so do the bees get high off the marijuana they make the honey from? The bees that produce the canna honey are not affected by cannabinoids because they do not have an endocannabinoid system, he says. It's just another form of food for them. And they have a video of the bees in action. And that's awesome news. So, positive things happening. Very cool. Uh, Very, very cool. I'll play some music, and we'll be back with some more stories. There's a band called Operators, and you may recognize the voice because it's a singer from Wolf Parade. So here's a song by them, and we'll be back in just a little bit. Welcome back. We have 
many more stories for you. Uh, first off, oh, some sad news. This comes from Democracy Now! Honduran indigenous leader Berta Cáceres assassinated, uh, won the Goldman Environmental Prize. And this is from March 3rd. Uh, Honduran indigenous and environmental organizer Berta Cáceres uh, has been assassinated in her home. She's one of the leading organizers for indigenous land rights in Honduras. In 1993, she co-founded the National Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, C-O-P-I-N-H. For years, the group faced a series of threats and repression. According to Global Witness, Honduras has become <coughs> the deadliest country in the world for environmentalists. Between 2010 and 2014, 101 environmental campaigners were killed in the country. In 2015, Berta Cotseras won the Goldman Environmental Prize, the world's leading environmental award. In awarding the prize, the Goldman Prize Committee said, in a country with growing socioeconomic inequality and human rights violations, Berta Cotseras rallied the indigenous uh, Lensa people of Honduras and waged a grassroots campaign that successfully pressured the world's largest dam builder to pull out of the uh, Aqua Darca Dam. Uh, and they feature a few videos here. Um, and then a statement from the SOA Watch, Honduras. At approximately 11.45 p.m. last night, the general coordinator of COPINH, Berta Cotseras, was assassinated in her hometown of La Esperanza at Tibuca. Uh, at least two individuals broke down the door of, of the house where Berta was staying for the evening in the residential La Labano, shot and killed her. COPINH is urgently responding to this tragic situation. Berta Cotseras is one of the leading indigenous activists in Honduras. She spent her life fighting in defense of indigenous rights, particularly to land and natural resources. Gotseras, a Lenka woman, grew up during the violence that swept through Central America in the 1980s. Her mother, a midwife and social activist, took in and cared for refugees from El Salvador, teaching her young children the value of standing up for, your disen for disenfranchised people. Gotseras grew up to become a student activist, and in 1993, she co-founded the National Council of Popular Indigenous Organizations of Honduras to address the growing threats posed to Lenka communities by illegal logging by illegal logging, uh, fight for their territorial rights, and improve their livelihoods. Berta Cotseras and COPINH have been accompanying various land struggles throughout uh, Western Honduras in the last few weeks. Violence and repression towards Berta Cotseras, COPINH, and the communities they support had escalated. In Rio Blanco, on February 20th, 2016, Berta Cotseras, COPINH, and the community of Rio Blanco faced threats and repression as they carried out a peaceful action to protect the river Gualcarque. Gualcarque, against the construction of a hydroelectric dam by the internationally financed Honduran company DESA. As a result of COPINH's work supporting the Rio Blanco struggle, Berta Cotseras had received countless threats against her life and was granted precautionary measures by the Inter-American Com Commission for Human Rights. On February 25th, 2016, another Lenca community supported by COPINH in Guise, uh, Itabuka was violently evicted and destroyed. Since, 2000, since the 2009 military coup that was carried out by graduates of the U.S. Army School of the Americas, Honduras has witnessed an explosive growth in environmentally destructive 
uh, mega projects that would displace indigenous communities. Almost 30% of the country's land was earmarked for mining concessions, creating a demand for cheap energy to power future mining operations. To meet this need, the government approved hundreds of dam projects around the country, privatizing rivers, land, and uprooting communities. Repression of social movements and targeted assassinations are rampant. Honduras has the world's highest murder rate. Honduran human rights organizations report there have been over 10,000 human rights violations by state security forces and impunity is the norm. Most murders go unpunished. The Associated Press has repeatedly exposed ties between the Honduran police and death squads, while U.S. military training and the aid for the, U- for the Honduran security forces continues. Uh, fuck. All right. Um, ugh, man. So moving along, uh, I'll do something that's, uh, that's just, uh, it's the, it's the continuing, the continuation of people standing up and doing the right thing and then being punished for it, which is sickening. Uh, I do want to move to something that's, uh, uh, well, something good happening, I guess. And that's, uh, Obama bans solitary confinement of juveniles in federal prisons. We shouldn't have prisons in the first place, nor should juveniles be there, nor should there be solitary confinement. However, this is a step in the right direction. All right. A uh, president says practice causes long-term psychological damage, uh, jeopardizes inmates ability to return to society and should only be used as a last resort. This is written by David Smith. Uh, Barack Obama is banning the use of solitary confinement to punish juvenile offenders in U.S. federal jails, saying the practice can cause long-term psychological damage, especially in young and mentally ill people. Obama announced the measure in an editorial column published online by the Washington Post on Monday night. It came as part of a series of reforms aimed at reducing the use of solitary confinement in federal prisons. Research suggested that isolating prisoners individually had the potential to lead to devastating, lasting psychological consequences, the president wrote. It has been linked to depression, alienation, withdrawal, a reduced ability to interact with others, and the potential for violent behavior. Some studies indicated it would worsen existing mental illnesses and even trigger new ones, he added, while prisoners in solitary were more prone to suicide, especially juveniles and people with mental illness. How can we subject prisoners to unnecessary solitary confinement, knowing its effects, and then expect them to return to our communities as whole people? It doesn't make us safer. It's an affront to our human. It's, a, it's an affront to our common humanity. The changes would ensure solitary confinement was a practice of last resort used when prisoners presented a danger to themselves or others, the president said. Obama said the reforms would affect roughly 10,000 inmates in the federal system. Around 100,000 people, Jesus, are in solitary confinement in the U.S., according to the White House. The Washington Post noted, however, that between September 2014 and September 2015, federal authorities were notified of just 13 juveniles who were put in solitary confinement. Obama has spoken on his hopes uh, to achieve reforms of the criminal justice system in his final year in office, highlighting it as a rate as a rare area of bipartisan agreement. He has also signaled his intent to use executive authority where possible, having previously announced a strengthening of gun laws. The latest move comes from Obama after Obama ordered the attorney general, uh, Loretta Lynch and the Justice Department to review how solitary confinement was being used by the Bureau of Prisons. He is now adopting its recommendations. In his post article, 
Uh, Obama set out to executive action that also prevents prison officials from punishing inmates with solitary confinement for low-level infractions. The new rules also call for an expansion of treatment for prisoners suffering mental illnesses. Uh, mental illness. Describing the U.S. as a nation of second chances, the president, okay, the president said he hoped his reforms at the federal level would push individual states to re-examine their rules on the issue. Prison officials in New York last month agreed to overhaul the use of solitary confinement. California, Mississippi, Arizona, and Ohio have also agreed to change to changes under legal pressure. Obama cited the heartbreaking case of Khalif Browder, who aged 16 was arrested on suspicion of stealing a backpack and sent to a facility in New York for three years. He was kept in solitary confinement and, according to his lawyer, beaten by inmates and guards. The case never went to trial, and Browder was released in 2013, but killed himself in his mother's home in 2015. Addressing the the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in June 2015, Obama said, Do we really think it makes sense to lock so many people alone in tiny cells for 23 hours a day, sometimes for months or even years at a time? This is not going to make us safer. That's not going to make any of us stronger. And if those individuals are ultimately released, how are they, how are they ever going to adapt? It's not smart. Yep, that's for sure. Um, say that a lot on this show. Uh, it's none of, not, Nothing I was reading in that article came as a surprise to me. I am grateful that people are taking action. And hopefully people will listen and work more towards uh, trying to re, the idea of rehabilitating people and keeping people safe instead of punishing people. Speaking of people who maybe should be punished, uh, unmasking San Francisco's Klansmen, and this comes from uh, the the paper El Tecolote, and this was written on March 2nd by Alexis Terrazas. Some folks know that there was this KKK rally in Anaheim a few days ago, and three people were stabbed, and the police decided to release the dude who stabbed them. And where does this guy live? He lives in San Francisco. He lives in the Marina District. Not a surprise to some of us who know San Francisco. Um, his house, his address is published online. So just going to put that out there. Uh, he's not welcome. And... You know, we hear about people being evicted all the time here in San Francisco, and I feel like this is one person that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, stand in the way of this person being evicted if he was to be evicted. He lives with his mother; they own the home. Still, uh, would not like this person to stay in the city. I think this person should leave the city. Let's read about him. Let's read about him. Okay. Whew. All right. Uh, Charles Edward Donner, the San Francisco Klansman, accused of stabbing three people in Anaheim during a highly publicized melee that broke out on February 27th, looked normal when he briefly exited his home directly across from the iconic Palace of Fine Arts in the marina uh, to move his car on March 1st. He was neatly dressed in slacks and a white button-down shirt, in stark contrast with the all-black uniform decorated with Confederate Klansman regalia he boasted just days before. But... The bruise below his eye, the likely result of a punch or kick in the face, gave him away. When Donner was asked about his KKK affiliation outside his home, he declined to comment. Donner was one of the more visible KKK members during the anti-immigration and anti-Muslim rally in Anaheim. His knife-wielding image was captured in multiple photographs and graphic video and widely shared across social media. The KKK rally had been scheduled for Saturday, February 27th at Pearson Park in Anaheim, but several anti-KKK protesters confronted the small group of Klansmen who had driven to the event in a black SUV. Violence ensued before the rally officially started, and the SUV sped off, leaving Donner and two other Klansmen behind, according to the Los Angeles Times. After being arrested Saturday by Anaheim police on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon, bail was set at $25,000, but Donner was released on Sunday without charge. 
According to the New York Times, Anaheim police determined that Donner had acted in self-defense. Goodness gracious. That sounds familiar, right, cops? Uh, The news that the lone Klansman held in police custody over the weekend called San Francisco his home came as a shock to many. El Tecolote has learned that Donner is the 51-year-old son of Charles Edward Dehonau and Maureen Dehonau, who formerly resided at what is now Donner's home in the marina. California Superior Court records show that Donner petitioned to change his last name from Dehonau to Donner in late 1986. Donner's father died in San Francisco on February 5, 1997, of complications from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, according to his obituary. Further research into the Dehonau family history revealed seeming contradictions with Donner's white supremacy affiliations. The Dehonau family, El Tecolote learned, has ties to Catholicism and Judaism, both of which have been well-documented targets of the Klan. Donner's father was born in New Jersey and attended the Princeton University, where he majored in psychology and where he was a circulation manager of the Daily Princetonian. There, he was also a member of the Catholic Club. Charles Dehonau also worked as Eastern Advertising Manager for Life Magazine's International Editions in 1964 and eventually sold advertising space for Vogue and Seventeen magazines before joining Time, Inc., according to the obituary. From 1965 to 1984, Donau served as the Asia Publishing Director of Time, where he was based in Tokyo, Japan. According to the obituary, Donner's father was called the American Samurai by his Japanese colleagues and was a consummate international person. Dehonau also became the president of the Princeton Club of Japan, and his favorite haiku reportedly read, In my garden, native plants, foreign plants growing together. The obituary also mentioned that Dehonau belonged to the Presidio Golf Club in San Francisco. Hmm, things are coming together. Further investigation of Donner's ancestry revealed that his New York-born paternal grandfather, William Dehonau, was son of German immigrants. William Dehonau's native tongue was listed in the 1920 United States federal census as Yiddish suggesting that Donner has Jewish family ties. El Tacolote contacted Donner's brother for comment. I don't have any comments about this, said Bill Dehonau when asked about his brother's affiliation with the KKK over the phone. All I can say is he's very mentally ill. Huh. So uh, that was the article from uh, El Tacolote. And there's also another article... Um, I will get to that was from SF Weekly that has some more information about him as well, including his home address on and on Baker Street. So let's play some more music and then we'll be back with some more news. Yeah. 
Hey, everybody. That was Prince, who will be performing in Oakland tonight. I've Quite a few folks I know have seen Prince performance. As the show is incredible. So I thought it'd be great to play some Prince songs. Okay, coming up. San Francisco emergency shelter update. It's been a bit rainy. It, the rain's kind of cleared a little bit now, but it's most likely, likely going to come back. So I wanted to present and, <laughs> I guess, read uh, the emergency El Nino shelter update. Uh, this is thank you to, to Kelly Cutler from the Coalition on Homelessness to for sharing this information. And this is from March 3rd. Uh, shelter space update number seven, uh, expansion for weekend rainy forecast. Due to the National Weather Services and other weather forecasts, for potentially severe rain, the following additional shelter spaces will be available on a first-come, first-served basis, starting at the noted times on Saturday, March 5th, 2016. These weather response sites will remain open through Monday morning, March 7th, 2016. Unless otherwise noted, please contact 311 to obtain, that's the number, not the band, to obtain the most recent information about which sites have space. The following community-based organizations are adding shelter spaces. Glide, 330 Ellis Street at Taylor, 40 mats for adults. Site will be open at 12 noon on Saturday, three, uh, March 5th, and remain open through Monday, March 7th, closing after breakfast. Next, Larkin Street Youth Resource, uh, Larkin Street Youth Services, 20 additional mats, youth ages 18 to 24. Site will open at 7 p.m. on Saturday, March 5th. Youth may report to either 1020 Haight Street near Broderick or 869 Ellis Street between Van Ness and Polk. Site will close Monday, March 7th, in the morning. Next, Mission Neighborhood Resource Center, 15 mats for adults, 165 Cap Street between 16th and 17th. Site will open at 5 p.m. on Saturday, March 5th, and will close at 6.30 a.m. on Monday. Uh, next is Providence Foundation, 15 additional mats for families. Please call 415-716-3344. Again, that's 415-716-3344 to check where space is available on Saturday at or after 8 p.m. They will check if there is space at Providence. 1601 McKinnon Street, 10 mats. Uh, or First Friendship, 501 Steiner Street, 5 mats. Please do not send families without calling first. Additionally, the city and county of San Francisco, under the direction of the Human Services Agency, is opening emergency weather shelters at the Howl, Howl, the Howl, the Hall of Flowers County Fair Building, 125, 125 mats for adults, and that's at 1199 9th Avenue at the corner of Lincoln Way. The site opens at 12 noon on Saturday, March 5th. Transportation via bus leaves MSC South Drop-In at 525 5th Street at Bryant, Saturday, March 5th at 1130 a.m. 2.30 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. Site will close on Monday. Return buses leave the Hall of Flowers at 8 and 9 a.m. Next, Bill Graham Civic Auditorium, Polk Hall, 100 mats for families and adults, 99 Grove Street at Polk. This site opens at 2 p.m. on Saturday, March 5th, and will close Monday at 9 a.m. Please contact 311, unless otherwise noted above, for the most recent information regarding where shelter space is available. These weather-related pop-up shelters are being operated during this weekend period due to severe weather forecast. These sites are in addition to the year-round emergency shelter systems and the 395 winter shelter spaces that were added earlier. Whew. So thank you to the folks on Coalition on Homelessness uh, for providing this information. Um, hopefully everyone will be able to stay warm and dry during this rainy, 
rainy season. Okay, so continuing on with this this D-bag, uh, I don't like to call people out, but if you're a KKK member living in San Francisco um, who has stabbed people and you're not in jail, and of course, I don't even necessarily believe in jail, uh, I just would rather this person... Ideally, in an ideal situation, I don't believe in punishment. I believe in people changing their behavior. So perhaps this person, especially who has Catholic and Jewish ancestry, uh, might wake up and be like, maybe I shouldn't stab people. That's the ideal situation. Not to punish him, although definitely have the urge, um, but for this person to wake up and to no longer just be affiliated and to be so actively violent and gross. That would be an ideal situation. (coughs) So Charles Donner, this marina man... There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, unpleasantness in the marina, and a lot of people dislike the marina. And this is for I, I was not at all surprised that he lived here. Um, I know quite a few folks who have experienced a lot of racism here in the city, and it's not at all unf- it's not at all surprised to me that there are folks here who are active members of white supremacist groups. Uh, San Francisco has a reputation of being a sanctuary city. It is a sanctuary city and has a reputation of being a welcoming place. And there's more than enough that happens here to indicate that it's unfortunately that's not true so let's work on making it so as i get more information about this this guy uh there is indeed at least one member of the kkk in san francisco he lives in the marina district and this article by the way uh comes from uh, sf weekly so another take on it this is written by chris roberts this is from wednesday um uh, he lives in the Marina District. Uh, police, uh, public records and police confirm Charles E. Donner, 51, was one of the five members of the vintage white supremacist group arrested after the rally in Anaheim on Saturday turned violent, the Klansmen. And according to video, one Klans woman were set upon by counter-protesters. A melee ensued during in which Donner stabbed three people, some of whom can be seen striking him on video. Anaheim Police Spokesman Sergeant Darren Wyatt confirmed to SF Weekly on Wednesday Donner was held over the weekend but released after it was determined he acted in self-defense. OC Weekly reported and according to OC Weekly photographer Eric Hood that's him above in the photo after the jump uh, that means he's free to return home to San Francisco where he lives with his mother in an extremely expensive house across the street from the Palace of Fine Arts of all places according to public records um uh, efforts to reach Donner via a telephone number connected to public records were not successful. Was not were not successful. Donner, apparently born Charles Donau, changed his name in the mid 1980s ostensibly because Donau sounds sort of French. Are French people white? Hard to say. As we reported earlier in the week, Donner is a son of Charles Donau, a 1949 graduate of Princeton University and a former publisher of Time magazine in Japan. He died in the 1990s, leaving his son and his wife Maureen in a home across the street from the Palace of Fine Arts. Uh, and then they have photos uh, about that home. According to Zillow, the home last sold in 1988 for $1.2 million, built in 1928. It's a 3,500-square-foot, two-story spread, according to public records. Nowadays, you could probably trade a horse like that for a small nation, a European one, of course. Eagle-eyed readers pointed out to SF Weekly that he has at times posted publicly on the Internet about his penchant for Nazi-related memorabilia, wherein he gave his home address. He is a registered security guard, according to state records, but when he was detained on suspicion of stabbing people, he gave his occupation as unemployed, Wyatt told SF Weekly. And it's on Baker Street. Uh, uh, you can go find the address. Um, but that hasn't stopped him from ascending in the Klan. Uh, according to the photo shot by OC Weekly photographer Eric Hood, Donner is an exalted cyclops. We won't even begin to try to unpack that one. Uh, there you have it. Next time you're on Chestnut Street, you can rest easy knowing that there's a number of clan collecting Nazi artifacts just a few blocks away. Um, they have a poll up, and do you think he acted in self-defense? And the majority of people, of course, say no. <sighs> All right. 
So, ugh, getting that. I wish I had some sage in here to like get rid of that kind of energy. And uh, um, yeah, well, ugh, don't want him here on the city at all. Don't want him here at all. So what's up next? Um, here's another story. Here's another story. I was also going to talk about actually um, Alex Nieto and the the trials have begun for Alex Nieto, who was murdered by police, and people have come forward. Uh, there's a witness saying that he, uh, of course, didn't. He had his hands in his pockets. He wasn't doing anything wrong at all, and the police shot him. And uh, so I'm going to read a little bit about that uh, first. So, in the meantime, just taking a few deep breaths in and out. There's a lot. There's a lots of process. There's a lot going on, and. Um, uh, here's a video, looks like, and I think that might be uh, good to play. Uh, thanks to Lisa Ganser for for posting this, and there was a yeah video uh, here. I'm gonna just get the volume up, and then we're gonna hear it. And uh, one moment, here we go. Okay, ¿sabes, Kareni? ¿Lo conoces? ¿Quién lo va a comenzar? Okay, ya come, por favor, por favor. Qué linda está la mañana en que vengo a saludarte. Venimos todos con gusto y placer a felicitarte. El día que tú naciste. So the breaking news is that witness uh, uh, Justin uh, Fritz apologizes to the Nietos after calling the police on Alex Nieto. Fritz claims that Alex Nieto had done nothing wrong that day. Witness Antonio Theodore testifies that police officers killed Alex Nieto in cold blood. And we are going to get some more information about that. And in the meantime, I'll play some more music. How about some more Prince? Everyone loves Prince. And we're back with some more news. Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Welcome back. I'm here with uh, Jesse Johnson from the Tenderloin People's Congress. Thanks for coming in, Jesse. Thank you. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Uh, I'm with the Congress, and I'm, I'm also, you know, a member of Hospitality House and with Faithful Fools, which I guess are basically the two organizations I'm, 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 I'm rooted in. But uh, there's now the, the People's Congress. There's now Tenderloin Votes. And there's several other organizations that with, 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 you know, the prefix Tenderloin on them. And what it is, that there's, there's a, a, a new wave of, of organizing happening in the Tenderloin uh, in response to, to the, some of the hyperdevelopment and, and the displacement that's you know, been caused by the, the, uh, the move of the tech companies into the mid-market area. Um, so, you know, and, and what it is, it's like, I mean, we have all these organizations, but we're, we're really talking about, a, like I say, a, a movement of people. Um, uh, one project that we're working on right now is something called the Tenderloin uh, uh, the, uh, Displacement Coalition. Basically, we're looking at, at what the you know what the, the the causes of displacement, and we're and we're looking for, for uh, long-term solutions, whether that be legislative, whether that be you know uh, you know uh, um, you know in programs that that, that that assist people with with their rent, or whether it be legislation that's going to. Um, uh, address some of the the conversions of the SROs that are happening in the Tenderloin, you know, things of that nature. Um, okay, okay. Um, that's great. So, what's being what's what's in the near future? Well, the, well, in the future, right now, the 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 Tenderloin People's Congress, we're getting ready to have a retreat, and the Congress is it's an alliance of of residents-based organizations. That is, we're all residents of the Tenderloin. Some some of the organizations are, are tenant organizations. Some are kind of, kind of ethnic-based. They're the Filipino and Chinese. Uh, recently, there was a, there was a a meeting of, of African-American Black activists in the Tenderloin. Um, there's a group called La Voz Latina, which is mm -hmm. obviously Latino, and then there's Tenderloin Votes. There's uh, uh, organizations like like uh, Transworld, which is a, you know media, and um, we're getting ready to have a retreat to look at at, at, at development in the community. And, we're, and the idea is to is to uh, you know lay out an alternative plan to the city's general plan, right? Yes. So that you know so that it's, you know you know a general plan informed by people as to what we would like the community to look like in the future. Um, I was asked the other day about what would justice look like in the Tenderloin, and that gave me pause. I'm you know I'm 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 still kind of you know mulling it over. I think for one, what would justice in the Tenderloin look like? For you know, I think for one, it would mean that uh, people weren't being thrown out of their houses. Yes. I think that it would mean that anybody who's, who's, because I know people who've lived there 25, 35 years in the same SRO, and suddenly, you know, they're, they're being threatened with, 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 uh, with displacement. Yes. Um, justice would mean that all that money you, you invested into, into, that, into that building would, would, would somehow, you know, you know keep, at least keep you stable and safe. Um, Justice would mean that you you know you don't have to you, you're not having to live half your life out on the street because you know they're, 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 the the building you live in is so is so crowded. Um, justice would mean you you wouldn't be afraid of of a cop every time you saw him. Yeah. Um, you know it it would mean that you have opportunity. I guess I'm not sure. I I, I still have to figure this out. That that you, that if you wanted to work or if you wanted to pursue a certain career, that there would be avenues you know available. If you need certain, you know, crucial social services, that they, they, they would be available without, without, you know, you know, a god long, you know, wait. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't know. You know. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a question that was posed to me, and I'm 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 now you know just now trying to, to figure it out. But it's a question I've been asking of other people as well now too. Yes. And uh, and we and we're it it you know and I think it'll it'll hopefully it'll stimulate a conversation, and and that'll be the basis for you know for a lot of our work. Yeah. You know, sometimes I ask people, um, what would what what do you think your how do you what will your life look like, or what will this neighborhood look like in the year two twenty, mm-hmm. uh, or twenty twenty. And um, it's a difficult question. I mean, I, you know, it's I it's I think it's it's hard for people to to project. Just, we're talking about five years to just project just five years into the future because you know changes happen so rapidly, and things are so unstable that I I, I think people I know you know there's a part of me that's afraid to project that that long into the future because I really don't know. Yeah. Um, there are too many factors that that I can't control, or too many factors that you know seem set against me. You know me that I can't control. Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot of the, the changes become come through grassroots organizations as opposed to waiting for people like elected officials to actually do anything well, about well, it. Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully it's like um, the thing is, you know, the reality is that our organizing efforts are maybe five, ten years behind. You know, mm-hmm. we just, you know, but I guess that's the nature of the beast. But um, so it, it's, it's almost a race against time, you know. Yes. Yes, just to make sure that I mean, how do, how does one undo what's already like, in place and what's already happening? Right, exactly. You know, I mean, sometimes it feels like you know, all we our only our only chance is to, is to be disruptive. Yes. You know, and and that's why on one level, you know, people complain about the the, the drug dealing in the neighborhood. They complain about you know people being loud and running around the streets and being all crazy and stuff. But you know, at least those people, at least those people, you know, you know. At least people are, are afraid of those people. So at least, I mean, it's, you know, and so they're they're a little more they're a little hesitant to take us on just yet, just because, in um, many ways, those are those people protect us, you know, because mm-hmm. they keep they keep certain people out, you know, they're they're problematic for for the authorities, and many ways, they're and that's why I always say, you know, those people, the, even the worst amongst us have a play, have a role to, even the most stigmatized amongst us have a role to play. Oh yes, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, I was thinking about how there's so many like empty units in like in San Francisco, in San Francisco and then also in the Tenderloin, mm-hmm. and I'm curious what can be done about that to kind of get them back. Um, if there's you, anything, you mean which which units are you talking about? The the the, the ones that need to be rehabbed, or just any of them? Like uh, overall, like all the empty units that are either like foreign investors have purchased or oh, the you people. Mean, oh, you mean uh, people? Uh, ones that people aren't living in? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I don't know, you know. It's, I don't know. I'm not sure what the what the stats are on 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 um, you know apartment luxury you know, condos that that are actually owned by people who don't live there. Yeah. I do know that you know there must be a market for them because there 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 are plans to build a whole slew of high rise uh, 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 developments along Golden Gate Avenue, mm-hmm. which is like they're lo- literally looming over the Tenderloin. I think they're they're projecting to be that they're within the next ten or fifteen years they'll add something like three thousand new luxury condo you know market rate units <sighs> in that in the in District Six you know um, at with twelve with inclusionary housing being still you know until uh, hopefully this election at a twelve percent rate I mean that that that's what three hundred. You know, units for 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 uh, you know, and then and those are affordable. They're, they're not they're not necessarily designated for low income. Low income, yeah. it's like I mean, it's even less than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, what can you wish for? Is it, I mean, <laughs> is it is it is it a uh, uh, treasonous to say you know you want the you wish the economy would collapse? You know. 
Well, I don't know if it's necessarily treasonous. I think it's uh, ideal to say that we could be in a situation where everyone who needs housing gets it by whatever means that is. Right. At this point, I was just like a breather from all, from having to, to, to fight off, you know, just the, 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 the rapid development. Yeah. Just to give us a, you know, a moment to, to, to yeah. pause, you know. Do you feel like the development's like the biggest challenge or what are the biggest challenges that, that, you're, that the organizations are facing um, right now? What is it, what are the biggest, uh, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's develop, it, 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 they're all tied together. It's the yeah. development, it's the displacement, you know, it's the competition uh, for, um, for housing in the Tenderloin. Uh, it's not only competition against you know the 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 the, the, the tech workers. It's like, in some on some level, we're we're competing against nonprofits who are you know contracted by the city to house people who have either you know uh, a mental mental illness or you know they're, or, or or they're 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 uh, handicapped in some way. And and the city, as opposed to building housing for people like that, you know contracts these organizations out who rent these SROs who warehouse people there mm-hmm. and those those therefore those uh, units are off the market to people who just like the average hotel worker who may need a place to stay i see you know because he can't compete with what what with what you know the the department of public health or with the AIDS foundation might be willing to pay for those units i see you know it's all it's all you know it's a complicated situation yeah yeah if it wasn't so complicated it'd be easier to yeah, solve it, it would um but i'm hopeful i'm yeah. optimistic you know it's like i mean i i, I know that um that you know, we that recently we just had those sweeps, but you know, you know, may, I may need to buy a tent someday and just set up somewhere, you know. And it's like, and I think that, you know, if we, you know, you know, occupy, I mean, you know, occupy with the stuff they were doing. And in many ways, it was just a little too soon, and it wasn't the right people, mm. you know. But uh, you know, if we had had. Uh, if, for example, if the people who were who were camping along Division Street had had uh, the, maybe the political unity or the political, you know, uh, consciousness about what they were doing, yes, I, I, it, I think the whole situation might have gone differently. You know, may it may have gone differently. You know, and just because they they swept up those people doesn't. I just saw we were just driving down 18th Street. I just saw mm-hmm. a, a whole another slew of oh yeah of, of, of tents. Yes, you know, in many ways maybe that's the solution. You know, I mean, if if we can make those conditions, you know, um, sanitary and and humane mm-hmm. and and but because everybody wants up you know everybody just i remember when, uh, years and years ago when i was traveling in, through latin america even you know you you would you would go by some you know this somebody who's sitting in a doorway and even there they they'd, they'd set up a little household you yes know? i mean the, the, you know everybody has that, that instinct you know yeah and uh and i think that's one of the people's uh one of the reasons people resist the uh the uh, the beds at 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 at, at, on, at Pier eighty because it's just, it's just a mat you know it doesn't allow you your space you yeah even if even if your space is you know is drawn with imaginary lines you know like when we were kids we were drawing chalk lines and this is where we lived you know yes. this is our house uh, even if it was just that I think people might be more comfortable yeah. Whew. Well, it's definitely a lot to consider. Anyway, so so yeah. There is the the St. Francis Homelessness Challenge, with that, which Amy Farrah Weiss has kind of spearheaded and a lot of folks are involved with, which is to actively go in and whether it's like to rent porta potties or just to actively be on the ground to provide people what they need. So there's oh, yeah? been some like brainstorming like online oh, good. and actively, yeah, and also just uh, creating even like events where people can go in and show up, whether if we know whether or not like the sweeps are coming for people to come in to either speak up to the DPW or the police department or and or to be there to witness. Oh, good for them. Um, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm, there's such a, I mean, you know, activists, homeless activists are, are getting, are, are being targeted with, I mean, 
you know, the, the in the media, the, you know, like the, the, the Coalition for the Homeless. I mean, they, they, I mean, they're really being attacked. There's some really ugly attacks uh-huh. happening against them, you know? And Or the people who were who were buying tents for people, I don't remember their name. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, they, they were, you know, they were spoken of as if, as if they're stupid or ignorant or somehow, you know, you know just contributing to the problem. But, uh, how, you know. That's ludicrous yeah and and we you know so it's important to like you know to you know to protect those people yeah as well it's like killing the messenger it's like people who are pointing out hey these are people too who need we need to help them as any way that we we are able to right and so so that homeless people are 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 portrayed as 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 as, you know as 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 diseased and 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 and, you know and 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 undesirable and people try to help them are, are portrayed as crazy yeah, you know, it's it's the opposite. It's the folks right, who exactly, are it's like exactly. the folks who are speaking out against it who are I feel right. like they're the ones who are maybe as we would say diseased. Right. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jesse, for for coming in. My pleasure. And it's always good to, to speak with you. Okay. Good. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so we'll play some music, and then we're just about to wrap up. We're just about out of time here. It's uh, yeah, one forty-eight. So um, coming up next will be Val Global Val with Women's Magazine, and Val did request that I uh, read a, a little invite about a show that that she will be in tonight, and that is um, from seven to nine thirty p.m. at the Beat Museum. Again, that's seven to nine thirty p.m tonight at the beat museum uh val will be performing so yeah stick around and we'll be wrapping up the show in just a little bit and here is just one more song from prince
listening. Is that Rosie? What? Trying to have fun no matter what you do. You want to tell me why? Food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite. I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, 
MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast got I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool and muniradio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to SubliminalSF.com now. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse or 
You can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> yeah. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. 